Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzdraver. On today's show, the Supreme Court. President Trump last night announced his pick for SCOTUS, as we call it here, a bunch of D.C. latte-sipping elitists that we are, and his name is Neil Gorsuch. He is currently on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver, and while much of the controversy currently centers on social issues, we're going to talk about tech policy today, and he has ruled on cases involving email privacy, antitrust, internet sales tax, and tech policy folks are trying to figure out what this means for those issues. So joining me to discuss this are two fine Tech Freedom scholars, Ash Kazarian, legal fellow at Tech Freedom. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. And of course, uh, Baron is here, and we were all very shocked to find out that he was not going to be picked for Supreme Court, uh, given that we work right next door to the institution. So here is spurned Supreme Court, never was a candidate, Baron Soka, president of Tech Freedom. Well, it is right across the street. And at least I have a consolation prize, which is that uh, Neil Gorsuch went to my high school and spent his time geeking out in the same activity I did, which was not Model UN, but Model Organization of American States. I have a great picture of him (laughs) from 1986. It could have been me uh, in the uh, mid-90s. Yeah, just like last night, it could have been you, but he picked him. Give me another 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He could have got a much younger libertarian on the court. Why, who, who doesn't want that? There you go. I, I'm a lawyer. I sometimes read cases. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Occasionally. Like when I have to prepare for podcasts like this. Right. So yeah, obviously we did a lot of preparation for today's show, and that will cl- be clear to you as you listen to the excellent substance we're about to spew forth <laughs> into it's, your podcast. We, we, have, we have the best substance. Yes. <laughs> and all the best legal minds. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Denver. So getting to the topic of surveillance, which is a big focus of some of the tech reporting around this nomination, Uh, Judge Gorsuch wrote an opinion in a case where, correct me if I'm wrong, was he defending a child pornographer? Not a great look going into a confirmation hearing, right, Baron? Well, no, when you put it that way. Um, So a central issue, first of all, this whole Fourth Amendment thing, some of what we're going to talk about today is obviously internet related. Some of it is less obviously internet related, but it's all the same principles, right? And the Fourth Amendment's one of the pillars of civil liberties in this country. I would say that it's the queen, the crown jewel uh, of our civil liberties. And this case happened to involve a specific internet issue, which was, so in the first instance, that there's a weird private organization that is responsible for dealing with child porn on the internet, which is called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Persons, or NCMEC. And the case that uh, that Judge Gorsuch decided last summer uh, actually has has really upended how all of that is handled by holding the bottom line is that Nick Mick needs to get warrants. And we can talk about why, but it's a, it's a really important case for internet law. And I think it's very encouraging for civil libertarians. And that, that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is whatever else you might think about Judge Gorsuch and his decisions or, on, or views on other issues – on civil liberties, as with Justice Scalia, I think there's a lot to be excited about. Yeah, and part of uh, Mitch McConnell's argument last year when he furiously blocked Merrick Garland, which was uh, President Obama's pick, was that he wanted to maintain the ideological balance on the Supreme Court. And if we're just talking about things like email privacy and the Fourth Amendment, is it fair to say that we're looking at another Scalia here? Yeah, I, I would say so. And indeed, uh, Merrick Garland, if anything, is the opposite. He was uh, deferential to the state, where Justice Scalia was not, and where Judge Gorsuch appears even less deferential. And that's kind of ironic, because you could make the argument that 
Obama chose an old white guy who was pro-law enforcement as a way of shaming conservatives and Republicans for blocking it uh, and making it making them look unreasonable, right, for not nom- for not um, confirming him before President Obama's tenure was up. But now we're looking at a Republican-controlled government at all three le- at all uh, b- both both houses of Congress and the presidency and a lot of state legislatures for that matter, and we end up with someone who's better on civil liberties than the Obama pick. Well, it's not just for the irony that you note, although I think there was that political dynamic. It's also because these issues have never broken down along clear ideological lines. Uh, you have, for example, Justice Alito, who is uh, very, very much a, a friend of law enforcement and has been willing to defer to them consistently. He's been a law and order uh, person. But that's true for many Democratic judges as well. So you can't attribute any one of these things to to simple party affiliation. There's another spectrum here of, of uh, fidelity to the Constitution. And I think in that department, both Judge Justice Scalia and, and Judge Gorsuch are are quite good and people across the political spectrum, civil libertarians should should be happy for that reason. So getting back to the specifics of this case, this is U.S. versus Ackerman and Judge uh, Gorsuch wrote the, uh, Gorsuch, sorry, wrote the opinion. I'm, I love how he's only been around for a day, so I get to still mess that up. But um, so this guy, Ackerman, was accused of distributing child pornography and AOL automated filter flagged images and then forwarded them to NCMEC, this organization that you uh, talked about earlier, Baron. And then this led to a law enforcement action. But the appeals court found that he didn't get a warrant, that NCMEC didn't get a warrant. And therefore, they threw out the case. I mean, why was it a problem, Ash, for NCMEC if this is not the police? Why did they need a warrant? Well, they're acting in a they were basically doing the government function. They were acting as the government searching for the specific information. So it kind of goes down to, well, if they were acting like the government, they have to follow the rules the government has to follow. Yeah. And why were they acting like the government? Why isn't this something that's just held or handled by law enforcement in the first place? Well, that's a great question. I've been asking that question for about nine years. And, um, when I first started asking that question, uh, let's just say that we were, at my former think tank, we were the subject of some rather strong arm intimidation tactics from Nick Mick, uh, who started calling our donors, uh, asking why we were even questioning um, how Nick Mick operates. And what I said was very simple. My grandfather was an FBI agent. I have his credentials sitting up on my wall here at the Tech Freedom office. And um, I don't understand why we're paying um, the people who run Nick Mick uh, private sector salaries to do things that are ultimately uh, supposed to be done by government. This is a core law enforcement function that has essentially been outsourced to a private entity that uh, not only pays uh, higher salaries that frankly could hire a lot more FBI agents than, than Nick, Mick, um, Nick Mick's budget goes towards, but also putting this at Nick Mick is a way of, of escaping um, protections that are designed to protect us from the state. The First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, records requirements, public information, uh, requests. These are all things that I think could be dealt with by Congress. And now in part because of this decision, I think you're going to have to be. So this this decision is important because it, it both calls into question the way that child porn has been dealt with. And it also means that Congress is probably going to have to regulate in this area. But it also has much broader implications well beyond the child porn context, just as, as Ash was saying, about signaling that Judge Gorsuch takes very seriously the idea that um, we're not going to allow the government to escape those uh, safeguards simply by by delegating to a private entity 
uh, essentially governmental functions. And, and he said that on two levels. Number one, he said that even though NCMEC is nominally private, it is essentially a government entity. It's operating under statute. Everything that you described happens under statute. But even if that weren't true, even if that, and that's a fairly high bar to, to reach, and it may be that NCMEC is quite extraordinary in reaching that. What's more important about this case is that it is a roadmap in the future for um, plaintiffs to argue that the government is mandating that private entities that don't quite meet that standard are still operating as agents of the government. And that's good news for civil libertarians across the board because it's going to make it easier, for example, to say that if uh, that the government uh, deputizes um, private companies, whether it's Google or Facebook and so on, into playing ball with uh, surveillance, um, that that can be challenged on Fourth Amendment grounds, and that the enemy there is not the private company, it's the government that's really coordinating the activity. So on those first two questions of, is this a government entity? Court said yes. Even if it weren't a government entity, still the court would have ruled the same way because clearly NCMEC was act acting as a government agent and used the term deputize, delegate, whatever you want to say. But Ash, there's this unresolved question in the case about the third party doctrine. And for listeners who aren't constantly plugged into you know, third party doctrine, it's essentially this idea that government can approach a third party like your email provider for your emails with a warrant. They don't have to deliver the warrant directly to the customer. Do I have that right? And how would that impact this? I mean, you would well, have to- Well, it, it, it's, it's even more than that. I mean, the Supreme Court in the late 1960s essentially said that you the Fourth Amendment only applies where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And historically, once you gave a document, a piece of paper, to any third party, even if it was a bank or someone like that, the court said that you lost your expectation of privacy because you couldn't control what that third party did, so the Fourth Amendment didn't apply. And that's why we had a statute like ECPA passed. So ECPA was that 1986 law that attempted to, by statute, replicate Fourth Amendment-like protections for remote processing and storage of data, which essentially became email, even though no one really saw that coming in, in late 1980s, uh, web, webmail. And, and this case touches upon that question of whether the third-party doctrine applies. And, and Judge, Gorsuch, Gor, Judge Gorsuch, there you go, I botched it too. <laughs> it's the Judge Gorsuch. There's an almost rhyme there. It makes it a little awkward to say. He doesn't actually give us a clear answer. He notes that there's an open question about the third-party doctrine, and he notes that there is a debate. And maybe it's just wishful thinking, but when I read that paragraph, and you can look for it in the decision, which we'll link to in the show notes— when I read that paragraph, I see him essentially not, maybe not showing his hand completely, but saying, hey, this is a question the courts are going to have to decide. And that's a lot further along than many judges are today who have simply ignored this question and have played down, most notably, the Sixth Circuit decision in Warshock, which said that, yes, a warrant is required for email. Judge Gorsuch at least tips his hat to that decision. So, Ash, that wasn't the only case where Judge Gorsuch was involved in uh, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. We also had United States versus Carlos. Tell us about that. Well, in United States versus Carlos, Judge Gorsuch uh, wrote the dissenting opinion. Uh, this case was um, pretty clear cut. Uh, law enforcement officers, um, they ignored the millions of no trespassing signs on the property and started knocking on the door of a suspect. And so the question was, could they have done that? Could have they crossed the property to the door um, if there were so many um, signs out clearly indicating that no one should trespass? 
And uh, Judge Gorsuch didn't agree with a majority opinion and said that, no, they should have stayed at the line where the property started. And he here looks like a clear textbook libertarian who respects the property rights and, you know, follows the Fourth Amendment to its core. And, and I, I think the key thing to understand in this case is that historically, uh, your home is your castle, as the old saying goes. That's actually a legal concept. What, what I think Judge Gorsuch was getting at was that that concept essentially had been eroded over the years by um, a recognition that there's an implied right of access to walk up the front, um, the, the, the path to the front door. So for instance, you know, on most people's property, the mailman can do that, right? And it's not reasonable to say that if the mailman can walk up to your door, that law enforcement can't too, right? So, and, that, and that's fine. But this case is really, it's an important test case because it gets to, if you decide that you're going to, if the general rule is no trespassing at all, and then the exception is, but of course, people can walk up to the door because the mailman does it to deliver mail. The question in this case was, can you then opt out of that exception? And what Ash just said is that this guy had very clearly opted out. Yeah, I mean, he sounds like a, a really interesting guy. I mean, he's got no trespassing signs all over his property. Also crazy, but the Fourth Amendment exists to protect subjective privacy preferences. And so the point here for tech uh, to abstract from this is that if Judge Gorsuch is willing to stand up for a crazy privacy fundamentalist and his decision to plaster his front lawn with no trespass signs, you would think that he would be willing to stand up for email passwords, e- emails, s- privacy, other very subjective forms of privacy in the future. Again, it, it, it bodes well. Locked phones. Yeah, Ash, what other cases could you imagine this hitting on? I mean, in the uh, in Politico's reporting today, they said he's going to be very strong on the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment when it comes to the Internet of Things. Um, but you mentioned, like, can a judge compel you to fingerprint unlock your phone? I mean, are these things where we can imagine him siding with libertarians? I would very sure, reassure that, yes. I It feels like in the next 20 years, all of his cases are going to come up, and he's going to probably sign with the more progressive judges on the court as Scalia did. Yeah, and that's an interesting coalition of the, you know, maybe the far right and the far left joining to oppose the majority in the middle. And and on that note, as we segue to the next case, let, let me just emphasize that the the, the really uh, fundamental case that the that where the court started to deal with the Fourth Amendment and new technology was back in 2001 in the Kylo case, not, not to be confused with Kilo, which was about eminent domain. But in Kylo, um, the court said that using, and Justice Scalia wrote the decision, using a, um, a, a heat sensor to detect marijuana cultivation inside the home was a search because they were looking inside and they were, they were collecting imagery in a way that, you know, previously you couldn't do because the wall prevented the law enforcement from getting inside. And the first thing that's important to note about that case is how unusual the bedfellows were. It was Justice Scalia writing for the majority, just joined by... Uh, Justice Thomas, his his usual constitutional uh, brother, but also uh, Justice Souter, uh, Justice Ginsburg, and Justice Breyer, right, against the uh, Rehnquist, O'Connor, and Kennedy joined by Justice Stevens. So that just simply illustrates that these Fourth Amendment cases are not a simple left-right divides. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see this deeply conservative judge as he is being portrayed in the media uh, people reckoning with the fact that he has now defended the Fourth Amendment rights of 
guy who likes to put no trespassing signs on his property, you know, maybe a crazy libertarian, anarchist, whatever he happens to be, uh, trying to opt out of society, go off the grid. He's also defended the Fourth Amendment right of a child pornographer. And then, of course, marijuana growers. So that's interesting that all this hoopla over deep red conservative judge, but it's not so simple. And of course, we are focused on tech policy today. I'm sure I would get some hate mail from people who who have views on other issues. And, and I think it probably uh, Merrick Garland would have been on the other side of, of Judge uh, Gorsuch on each of these cases. So, Baron, you mentioned this uh, wonderful technology where cops can figure out if you're growing marijuana without a warrant. Um, and that was something that this judge had a problem with. United States versus Denson. This is another handheld radar scanner type case. What happened here? Well, that's a, a very recent case. And it's um, it's very exciting because it's very consistent with what Justice Scalia said in, in the Kylo case. Uh, here, the issue was about um, uh, an even more granular form of surveillance inside the home, which was the police have a hand handheld scanner that is not just a heat map, it actually can detect how many people are in the home, specific numbers of people. Is the home empty or occupied? So um, the issue in the case uh, is a little complicated because it actually cut both ways, and that's what's really interesting about it. But there was a, a, a fugitive who'd hidden a home and was arrested after a search for having guns that he was not allowed to have. And uh, the fugitive argued that the police had entered his home uh, without reason to believe that he was there. Uh, and then second, that the police didn't have a lawful basis to search his home. And on the first score, um, Judge Gorsuch again wrote the, the opinion. He didn't actually have to address that question, whether the radar could have provided an independent reason to believe, because the police had so many other things to point to that they could satisfy that standard. But he does say things that are very encouraging for civil libertarians. I think it's worth quoting here just briefly. Uh, it's obvious to us and everyone else in this case that the government's warrantless use of such a powerful tool to search inside homes poses grave Fourth Amendment questions. New technologies bring with them not only new opportunities for law enforcement to catch criminals, but also new risk for abuse and new ways to invade constitutional rights. And then cites Kylo, that 2001 Supreme Court decision by Justice Scalia. Unlawful searches can give rise not only to civil claims, but may require suppression of evidence. We have little doubt that the radar device deployed here will soon generate many questions for this court and others along both of these axes. All right? That's that's a full-blown civil libertarian who just didn't happen have the opportunity to decide that case on those grounds. And Ash, there are some other technological issues that we work on with privacy and surveillance where you can imagine a similar fact pattern. Um, stingrays, these are fake cell phone towers that police put up that capture a bunch of information. We know very little about how they're being used. And you can imagine that the judge might see that as kind of similar to using a handheld radar without a warrant. Um, and then there are, of course, these other issues about suppressing evidence. Will the government have to lose cases because they don't want to admit how they got the evidence? I wouldn't go that far uh, based on Judge Gorsuch. Now I messed it up too. <laughs> we all did it, yay. <laughs> Uh, based on judges' uh, previous opinions, he is on the side of the Fourth Amendment full on. However, if we with Stingrays, most of the information and all the cases and the way it it's operated, we don't know. It's all classified. So he may side with the government to not open the books on them. 
Right. So and Scalia would have. Okay. So it, it, if we're looking at that particular fact pattern, he might say it's too soon to tell. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's actually a good segue into the next issue in the case, which was, remember I said that the, the fugitive made two arguments. First was the police didn't have reasonable um, basis to believe he was in the home. But then second, they said, okay, well, once you found me, you didn't have reasonable basis to search the home because the radar, the, the fugitive claim, told you there was only one person in the home. And, and, and now this is fascinating because this is the opposite of the normal fact pattern. So here, the fact that the government has this better um, surveillance technology is actually being used against the government to say that that undermines uh, their argument. And, and so in many ways, I think this is perhaps the more interesting thing that we're going to deal with in the future. And it boils down to what, um, what uh, Ash just said. Um, the judge says, um, well, okay, so... Um, maybe this cuts both ways. Um, paradoxically, could this undermine the government's basis for searching? Uh, it's going to depend on factual questions. Could the device search the whole house? Could it allow the officers to know that the search had been conducted to locate every person present? Could it distinguish between one person and several? We just don't know. Our record lacks any answers. As a result, we're not in a position to say that the radar search negated officers' otherwise specific and articulable reasons to worry that there might have been someone else in the house, which is what justified the search. So so that, in other words, is to say, we're not sure. And in this particular circumstance, we're going to defer to the government. But then Gorsuch says something that's more comforting. Quote, we don't doubt for a moment that the rise of increasingly sophisticated and invasive search technologies will invite us to venture down this road again and soon. We don't doubt that the use of such devices could wind up undoing the justification for these protective sweeps in the future, but we lack information to uh, decide that case. And he notes here, he says, the government cannot take the benefit of a questionable radar search without having to live with its costs as well. So it's a little bit unsatisfying because he doesn't get to a final answer. And you don't finally know whether he would go so far, as Ash said, to require the government to reveal more, to say more in the record about the efficacy of these tools. But that's the kind of question that's going to be litigated over in the future. And the good news here is he's th- we talk a lot on the show about cost-benefit analysis. He specifically talks about weighing privacy costs and privacy benefits in a way that starts from a healthy skepticism of government. So moving on to the First Amendment, uh, Politico's reporting today suggested that he's going to be good on those issues, uh, particularly on the Internet of Things. One of the sources they interviewed about him said that. What about you guys? You guys are lawyers. Do you have reason to believe that Judge Gorsuch will be good on the First Amendment? Short answer, yes. Usually um, more conservative judges are very good on First Amendment. They're more absolute when it comes to the First Amendment questions. So for me, as I am also very strong on First Amendment, that's good news. And and, uh, everything that we just discussed about the Fourth Amendment, and particularly that discussion in the Nickmick case, the Ackerman case, actually has application in the First Amendment context as well, where the question is often, is the government lurking behind something? What is their role? Are they coercing private actors? And the, the same sort of analysis that Judge Gorsuch went through to say that NICMIC is a government entity, or if it's not, that it's at least acting as an agent of the state. That same analysis is going to play out in First Amendment cases as well. So that's good. I would also point to, for, for as much as people get upset about the Hobby Lobby case on, on 
general religious liberty grounds and because of the abortion issue, if you actually take the time to read Hobby Lobby and Citizens United, um, you should at least walk away from it with an, an optimism that Gorsuch is a First Amendment um, absolutist. Because what Citizens United said is that people do not lose their First Amendment rights merely by joining together in a corporation, whether that's or a, a union. union yeah. a, cor- a union is just a corporation, yep. right? It's just a different kind of corporation. That was the Citizens United. The Hobby Lobby case, you could make a, a somewhat different argument about because it, it does get into somewhat different issues. And, and, and I'll let Ash wait on that. But, but the core of the case is ultimately about saying that he takes a fundamentalist view of the First Amendment. And it would be very difficult for someone who wrote that decision to then walk away from that in other circumstances. Ash, potential downsides of such a fundamentalist view of the First Amendment. I mean, maybe there are folks who don't think uh, corporations should be treated as individual persons. AKA me. <laughs> um, yes, um, there, there are downsides to that. But um, honestly, based on the precedents that we have by now, the Supreme Court precedents, corp- corporations are pretty much covered. I don't believe um, any of those decisions are going to be overruled anytime soon. And the good thing about Judge Gorsuch is that not only he be- he is very principled when it comes to this issue. Not only he believed that corporations have right to religious freedom, also there was a case where an inmate who was um, in, in prison for life for killing his daughter, he believed that that uh, that person should have an access to a place of worship. He was Native American, to a place of worship where he can practice his religion because he believed that that was his honest uh, will to come, you know, to practice his faith. As part of rehabilitation, you could argue. So, uh, getting to the last topic of the show, which we'll do, is uh, Chevron deference. Now, uh, obviously, we need to define our jargon here on the show. But Chevron was a case in the 80s where the court basically held that when there's ambiguity in a statute passed by Congress or when the law is unclear, the courts are going to defer to the agency, the regulator that interprets that law. And for the purposes of this podcast, this has mostly come up in the context of the FCC. You know, Congress wrote communications laws in 1934 and 1996. And of course, in 2016-17, regulators are going to be trying to implement old laws. And this precedent says, you know what, the courts are just going to say, go for it. You do you, you know, you know best. And even Scalia, you could argue, was big on Chevron deference. And that might be one of the first areas where he departs, uh, or Judge Gorsuch departs significantly from uh, Scalia. But just in general, what should people expect on this idea of Chevron deference? There is a law in Congress that would remove Chevron deference. It's called the Separation of Powers Restoration Act. Tech Freedom has supported that as a way of reining in the FCC and FTC. But this could also be decided by a court case where they revisit the same fact pattern of Chevron. So what should people expect on this issue that affects every regulator, not just tech regulators? Well, and it's not just every regulator. It's every administrator. So immigration uh, officials, you know, it's every branch of the government, not just those that, that try to discipline big companies, all of them. And that means the people, the INS officials, right? They're all dealing with statutes that Congress has given them that are, um, in many cases, ambiguous. And right now, uh, uh, there are some exceptional cases where Chevron does not apply. And where that seemed to be where Justice Scalia was going, was to start carving out certain limits to when Chevron would apply. But when Chevron does apply, 
Uh, judges just have to ask, well, is the statute ambiguous and is the agency's interpretation reasonable? And if so, the government wins. D- and what's wrong with that? I mean, well, why, why well, shouldn't the court just two say words, that? The, two words. You know. Donald Trump. I mean, in other words, to say, you know, if Democrats want to rein in the imperial presidency, this is the number one issue. I mean, and I mean that even above the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment, because getting to those constitutional matters, I mean, sometimes that will save you. But ultimately, if if the agencies can claim Chevron deference in in their day-to-day work, then the administrative branch gets to make law. And that was essentially the heart of Judge Gorsuch's um, brilliant opinion that um, that just came out in this case that that we should link to in the show notes, where he basically said this is a violation of the separation of powers, hence the name of that act in Congress that you mentioned. The reason it's called the separation of online uh, of separation of powers restoration act is because um, we and Judge Gorsuch and many other people um, on both sides of the aisle. But, but mainly mainly on the right, unfortunately, have, have said that, you know, the job of the judiciary is supposed to be to decide what the law is. The job of the Congress is to write the law, and the job of the administrative agencies is to enforce the law, not to make it. So many on the left are obviously, you know, going to be upset about this. Maybe not in the short term because it's Donald Trump as president, but they rely on regulators like the FCC, like the FTC, to pass policies that might not be able to get through Congress. And they've long, you know, Obama's famous for using executive power, which is why a lot of people are scared of Trump, that he can just undo everything. But agencies have been able to regulate, hold companies accountable, do consumer protection that we don't always agree with. But that's been the game. And Ash, is it kind of weird, though, that on an issue like immigration, where people are understandably very concerned right now. I mean, whether you're a libertarian, civil libertarian, people who work on the NSA, there's a lot of agreement here that this is kind of scary. Um, Is there comfort for progressives on immigration in a Judge Gorsuch because unilateral action at the executive level on immigration might get reined in? I mean, is this something that that you could count as a win if you're pro-immigration? As someone who is on a visa, there's no comfort at all right now, to be (laughs) honest. But... Yes, uh, I to all of my progressive friends out there, this is a good thing. Judge uh, Gorsuch really does. In Gutierrez, the case Baron was talking about, he says uh, we shouldn't permit executive bureaucracies to swallow up huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of a framers' design, and that's uh, exactly what we need right now. If you are um, alarmed by the way Trump is staffing the agencies and firing people until he finds the ones who will do exactly what he say without questioning, uh, or even you know con- comparing what his executive orders are to the Constitution, this is a judge who would cut down on those. I think it's worth just quoting here to close because um, Judge uh, Gorsuch deals with exactly this question. He says. What would happen in a world without Chevron if this Goliath of modern administrative law were to fall? Surely Congress could and would continue to pass statutes for executive agencies to enforce. And just as surely, agencies could and would continue to offer guidance on how they intend to enforce those statutes. The only difference would be that courts would then fulfill their duty to exercise their independent judgment about what the law is. 
Of course, courts could and would consult agency views and apply agency interpretation when it accords with the best reading of the statute. But de novo, that is a new judicial review of the law's meaning, would limit the ability of an agency to alter and amend existing law. It would avoid the due process and equal protection problems of the kind documented in our decisions and goes on to explain how much it would it would actually uh, bolster the people's liberties. Um, and it would we would still have an administrative state. We would simply, in a world without Chevron, little would change except perhaps for the most important things, he says, which is we would have the courts playing the role they're supposed to play of checking executive and, and other uh, independent agencies. And that's across the board. So that, if you were, for those of your, our listeners who will recall our arguments about the open internet order case, this was our argument. We were the only ones in that case to make this all about Chevron. Uh, and that's what most administrative law cases are going to come down to. And my own take on this is that one way or another, the Chevron doctrine is dead man walking. Um, it's possible the courts will undo it. We'll now have two solid votes against Chevron of any kind on the court, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, if he's confirmed. Um, but he'll be able to to build bridges. Justice Breyer on the left has always been very concerned about Chevron. There are other people in the middle who have been as well. And even if that takes time to work its way through the court, I think Congress is likely to pass the Separation of Powers Restoration Act, not only because it had 113 co-sponsors in the House and 12 in the Senate in the last Congress, but because I think Democrats are going to start to wake up and realize that this is their only hope for the next uh, four, eight, and many, maybe more years. Well, right. I mean, when people kind of just accept executive power and let the executive run wild, they tend to do that more when their guy's in office, and they tend to be alarmed by it when their guy's not in office. But we're not necessarily in the typical Republican-Democrat mold. We're dealing with a very different kind of president. So just to recap what we've talked about, and then I'll let you give your final thoughts, Ash. Uh, talked about a lot of things. Surveillance. This is a guy who said that you need a warrant if you're going to bring an enforcement action against a child pornographer and be looking at their emails, that this non-government slash government entity was clearly acting like the government. This is a guy who said, who agreed that, you know, using these you know surveillance technologies outside of a home that basically are searching the home, but not really, you need a warrant for that too. And we have every reason to believe that based on those Fourth Amendment cases, he'll be good on the First Amendment. And then when we're talking about reining in the executive, Chevron deference, whether it happens through the court or whether it happens through Congress, we might be in a world where courts are more heavily scrutinizing when agencies try to interpret ambiguous statutes. Final thoughts on Judge Gorsuch, Ash. For the tech world, Judge Gorsuch is pretty solid. And for everyone who is organizing and trying to oppose his nomination, that would be the stupid move since he's filling in Scalia's shoes, um, Democrats took a gamble. They didn't ask RBG to step down and pass her with That's someone back. Yeah, Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg yeah. <laughs> with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, lawyers always use the RBG. <laughs> Notorious RBG. Um, <laughs> they didn't ask her to step down. They, it was their gamble. Uh, Republicans took a gamble too and didn't let Garland pass. No one knew how the election is going to come out. Now we have Gorsuch, who's going to be like Scalia in most of the things, and we don't know like what like is going to be on a lot of issues. So all you have left now is send vitamins to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and pray. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> on that cheerful note, uh, that's it for today's show. We've got a lot to to consider with uh, this nomination and uh, what it means for technology policy. And that's what we stuck to on the show today for the most part. So good for us. Uh, of course, uh, let's thank our guests, Ash Kazarian, legal fellow at Tech Freedom. 
Thank you, Evan. And Baron, who's still getting over not getting picked last night. Uh, Baron, president of Tech Freedom, thanks for joining. He'll get another pick. I'm just saying. (laughs) Not if we send enough vitamins, right? (laughs) So follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Feel free to pitch yourself as a guest or let us know what you think about the Supreme Court nomination and tech policy. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thank you for listening. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.